From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. I've known Benjamin Vanden Mellenberg for about five years. At that time, he was on the pop-up market circuit. He was selling these wood iPhone cases, and he had a mission to bring technology closer to nature. He called his company Woodchuck USA and committed to manufacturing in Minnesota. Within six months of creating his first iPhone case, Woodchuck was selling nationwide at Target and Best Buy. Since then, Woodchuck added a buy one, plant one mission and has planted millions of trees on six continents. Woodchuck now offers an array of wood products, journals, flasks, art, and more, and counts Google, U.S. Bank, Cargill, and Ecolab among its corporate clients. And while growing the company, Ben also got into real estate development. He's created a startup hub in Minneapolis. He's building a nature center in central Minnesota. He visited all seven continents. And oh yeah, he just wrote a book about entrepreneurship. I've loved following Ben's story, and I'm so impressed by what he's accomplished all before turning 30. Thanks for being here, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. And I, I just, I so, I love whenever we, I just get so inspired whenever we talk. You are a great guy. You've got a great worth work ethic. And then there's this part of me, whenever we talk, I'm like, what the heck have I done wrong? You are 28 <laughs> years old. No. How no. have oh you done God, this? No. No, a lot of failing, literally a lot of failing and just getting back up and, and keep going. And mm-hmm. uh, hopefully no one notices. <laughs> right. I don't believe that. <laughs> seriously, Let, let's go back. Seriously. In your book, you describe yourself. We should say the book is called, well, can we say the name? It's called The World Needs Your Effing Ideas. That's, a per, that's how you say it. There PC. we go. Okay. It's PC. Very good. And Did that's your parents how you approve it on of Amazon? My mom title? was really confused uh, when I told her <laughs> because I kind of set it out of context. And she's like, is it a book on, you know, like doing it? Oh, uh, my God. I was like, oh, my God, Mom. Get your mind out of the gutter. Like, <gasps> That's what? That's hilarious. She's like, well, you might want to clarify that because people might have, you know, questions. And I was like, I mean, totally fair, Mom. Valid but point. most people's heads probably aren't there most of the time. I don't know. Maybe I they are. I love that but, that was your mother's concern. Yeah, exactly. But in the in the early part of the book, you describe yourself as a broke-ass farm boy. Yeah. Is that really true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, two incredible, incredible parents that uh, taught me an incredible work ethic. But, um, you know, I, did, I didn't come from money. I didn't come from uh, a long list of business owners and, and uh, kind of entrepreneurial onset, you know, uh, to have that. It, we, we grew up uh, butchering our own chickens and butchering our own animals to, you know, uh, have enough meat and uh, working out on the farm and, um, you know, was super, super fortunate for that experience. But, you know, I didn't have any of this. I didn't come, I didn't have, you know, six generations of entrepreneurs to teach me how sure. to build a multi-million dollar business or, uh, you know, I didn't go to Harvard and wasn't surrounded by all these networking entrepreneurial, uh, minds. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, so, so you that's went, how it started. Well, you went to the University of Minnesota. Yep. And you were interested in architecture? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so I, I throughout high school, I was like, I want to become an architect. I had shadowed a guy um, at my church at the time that was an architect locally, and I spent a day with him. I just spent 24 hours with him uh, and just was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I want to do. He's drawing buildings. He's making models. He's going on to the construction site and making sure that things getting built. So uh, since high school, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, applied to applied to two schools, decided on the U of M for architecture, um, and graduated with a, an architecture uh, and a landscape architecture degree. And knew I wanted to go to Colorado uh, to design kick-ass modern homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this kind of came up my final year of school. Right. So you didn't go to architecture school. I didn't. Yes. What happened? I didn't. So um, I'd worked really hard in school, got great grades. Um and I uh, had two full-ride scholarships kind of on the table to go to graduate school for architecture. And at the time, a couple weeks prior um, to having to decide on, you know, do I go to grad school or accept one of the offers, um, I had started making these wood phone cases because I fell on my rollerblades coming from cheer practice. I had to, I was working three jobs to pay for college. Wait, and you were uh, a cheerleader? Yeah, yeah. I was a, I was in college cheerleading. That was kind of this I did not know. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I so see that. Okay. Uh, I was, I was wrestler all throughout high school. Never did cheerleading. Um, and then my sophomore year, I started doing co-ed cheerleading, which was seriously the most fun thing of all times. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I went from wrestling sweaty dudes to hanging out with re- really beautiful uh, girls. Mm-hmm. So I think I had a pretty good uh, change there. Um, but, uh, you know, so anyway, did that. It was a blast. And I was rollerblading uh, from practice to go work at one of my jobs. It's like 10 o'clock at night. I fell on the rollerblades, ate it, and uh, shattered my iPhone. Mm-hmm. So later that night when I was at the, the, model, the modeling shop where I was working, um, I was like, oh, I should stick a piece of literal wood veneer on my phone to like cover up the cracked glass. Um, and I, you know, stuck it on both sides. I was like, oh, this kind of looks kind of cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, literally that was it. You know, it wasn't this like, oh my God, I'm going to build this huge company and do all these things. You didn't it have was that just, I, I didn't want to stab my face with glass. Sure. Um, so that was the main thing. I showed it to a couple buddies the next, uh, that throughout the next week on the cheer team. They're like, oh, can you make me one? Can you put some stuff on it? Can you put like co-ed cheer? I was actually just mm. looking back at pictures of this uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, anyway, so I was like, yeah. They're like, oh, I'll give you 20 bucks or I'll give you a case of beer. And I was like, both of those sound awesome. This thing cost me like 50 <laughs> cents to make. Will work for And beer. that will help, uh, you know, that'll help me pay for school. So anyway, I just was making these things on the side. Again, not planning on and doing anything were, crazy with it. And you it. had the access to the wood and the yeah. you could cut it because you were working yep. for an architecture yeah. place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh so anyway, I, I, it was a couple weeks or maybe a couple months into this, and I sat down with two of my architecture mentors. I said, hey, you know, I started this thing. I've been selling a couple of them here and there. Um, should I go to grad school or should I, like, start a business making these phone cases? And uh, both of the mentors, uh, David Washburn and John Cunningham, both of them I sat down with them at separate times, and both of them said, go start a business. You're going to learn more in two years. Than you ever will at grad school, and both of them were very, very successful uh, architecture people hmm. in the architecture world. And I was like, "Well, that's like pretty weird coming from architecture people. Are like, I would have expected them to be in, like a phone case company. You shitting me, right? Like, go to grad school. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I 
declined both uh, uh, scholarships, and my mom almost killed me. I'm sure. Uh, and I said, oh, no, I'm starting this phone case company, Mom. Uh, so anyway, a couple months after that, we ended up um, getting into all 1,800 Target stores nationwide. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You're skipping a couple yeah, of yeah. steps okay, here. Okay, couple steps. So, so all right, d- number one, so, okay, you've decided to do this. Who's yeah. the we? You, yep, you yeah, had yeah. A, you had so, a friend. Yep, at this time, it was my buddy, Kevin, and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kevin was a kinesiology major, literally also knew nothing about business, had never taken any business classes like myself. That's a great person to go into business oh, with, totally, right? Oh, totally, totally. Uh, we didn't know what an invoice was. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know... Uh, P&L. Literally, oh, didn't even know what that meant, for sure <laughs> Not PL or balance sheet, none of that stuff. Um, EBITDA, margins, literally none of that. Like we made wood phone cases. And uh, we had at the time also watched a Simon Sinek TED Talk. And I, I tell this all the time um, you know, if there's one thing you take from this and you're listening to this, go watch Simon Sinek's TED Talk. Um, it's called Great Leaders Inspire Action. It's about the golden kind of why, the why of your business. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. So anyway, we, we sat down, we watched this video and and we were like, man, we're both really passionate about nature and about American jobs. Um, you know, we should really land on like a mission of something, not just, hey, we make wood phone cases. Right. You know? and, and we came up with um, nature back to people jobs back to America and quality back to products. And that literally to this day, and it was, you know, the, the company was technically founded seven years ago. And to this day, that's still our mission statement. Mm-hmm. That's still what we're continuously focused on. Um, but we said, hey, let's do this. Let's let's have that mission. So we started going around peddling these things for a couple months. And, How were you uh, even getting them made? Didn't you need equipment? Yeah, no, no. We just, uh, we were like basically making them. We started for the first month making them um, at, uh, the college and then we got a little mini laser cutter and we were doing it ourselves and then working with a guy who owned a model shop close to campus so we would we would drive over to this guy's shop and we'd you know pay him for making the stuff or we would work for him to make the stuff so like we'd work for him and kind of like pay off the fact that he was making these things Mm. uh for us and um then we would our packaging at the time too was like literally saran wrapped I mean, it was like a shrink wrap saran. These things look so ghetto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they were the most ghetto looking things you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were making these for a couple months and um, we started approaching retailers and just learning a lot. We were learning a lot of stuff kind of through this through this phase. And um, we got into Target stores after a couple meetings. We had a rep. Um, however, you know, so this sounds awesome. Oh, my God, you got into Target stores every six months. Well, we had signed up for consignment, which we also didn't know what consignment meant at the time. That means that you make all of the product, you you pay whatever you need to pay on packaging and spend whatever you need to spend to make the product, which was pretty significant for us because it was like 180 some thousand units. Mm-hmm. You put it in our stores and if it sells, we will pay you. Mm-hmm. If it does not sell, you take it back. So we, we literally had no idea what any of that stuff meant. We were just like, oh, my God, we just sold half a million dollars with the phone cases. Sure. We're going to be billionaires. Right. Like, we should go buy a yacht. Like, where are we going to spend all this money we just made? Um, what do you think um, – why did it even appeal to Target in those early days? We, what did they see? Was it you? Was it the idea? What yeah, was it? Yeah, I think I think the – the idea and definitely the mission. I mean, it, this was just coming around where like the mission was important. Like they wanted some, you know, local stuff, mission stuff. Um, and we had performed mediocrely well on bestbuy.com. So like probably 
couple weeks or maybe a month before we had got the yes, we had gone into BestBuy.com and we had performed mediocrely well. I mean, not good by any means, but you good the enough to say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this is a Minnesota brand. It's got a good story. They're doing good stuff. Um, let's bring it in and see how the product sells especially if you're doing it on consignment. You know, you can look like a hero as a buyer and not have to spend any money. So it was kind of like a, yeah, why not do this? Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how that whole kind of thing transpired. And we we learned. So we got the, the sell-through report after the first week, right? So we get all these units into stores, huge hurrah. We think we're, you know, going to be the next Richard Branson from you phone cases. You somehow got them made? Oh, my God. You... It was a two-week-long thing. We we couldn't pay anybody, so we had pizzas and beers, and we were making them on this one little laser cutter that we had out of a print shop that we were borrowing. Uh, I mean, it was just the most crazy hodgepodge. I didn't sleep for like four days, and neither mm-hmm. did Kevin. And... um so we get all this stuff, we package it up, it's all skewed correctly and all this kind of stuff. And we get, we're waiting, you know, for the week for the first sell-through report. And we get the sell-through report. Um, I'm grabbing it like it was a piece of paper. It was an email. Uh, and we get the sell-through report and it said, out of all 1,800 stores, you've sold seven units. Ooh. And we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, there's literally no way this can be right. Like- it could probably accidentally fall into more carts and just get purchased on accident than right, seven out of right. 1,800. Oh. Like there's got to be something wrong with this. So did you get kicked out? Uh, how long was how long had Target given you? You know, I'm not exactly sure how long it stayed in. The, it, it stayed in for a few months to test out to really make sure that it was that poor of a performer <laughs> before we took it out um, because uh, – there, you know, there are fees associated with staying in and not having certain amounts of sales and stuff like that. So anyway, a couple months later, we decide we need to take the product out and take all this back. We're not getting any money. So we're totally out of money mm-hmm. um, because at that point, uh, to in, just in order to make that those units for Target, we had gone to friends and family. Again, you know, didn't come for money. wasn't like, hey, mom, dad, can I have, you know, uh, 200 grand or mm-hmm. something to, to to launch this product line? We went around to friends and families and uh, got these micro loans between two and $5,000. Um, two of them were $10,000 to fund the packaging. So we had kind of gone around and got, uh, I think it was $52,000 total to make Pretty the packaging. Good. That was enough to, you know, make the product. And we had to get it out of Saran Wrap. And get it out yeah. of Saran Wrap. Yep. We had great packaging. And uh, so we launched and uh, we were like, oh, my God. Now, not only did we just lose all this money that we, you know, we're going to have to pay back, um, but we also didn't sell any units. And it was a couple weeks after we took the product back that we were just trying to figure out what to do that um, Red Bull had reached out to us, a guy named Matt Christensen, who's now one of my best friends, uh, reached out to us from California and said, hey, I saw what you guys are making, these like wood phone skin things. Um, Can you put our Red Bull logo on it? And can you put a bunch of our athletes' names on them, 12 of them, and ship them to California? Like, we need them tomorrow. Hmm. And we're like, well, we're not doing anything else. (laughs) Uh, We have literally nothing else to do. So, yes, we will do that. And he's like, I'll pay full price for him. We're like, oh, my God, he's going to pay full price for him? Like, that's awesome. Like, mm-hmm. this sounds like such a good deal. Um, so we customized them, shipped them out the next day. He got them. I was like, these things are awesome. I love them. Uh, I have another event in, like, next, like a, a week from now. Can you do, like, 30 of them and ship them there? We're like, yep. Again, huh. we don't have anything else going on. Yeah. We'll start doing that. Uh, so, anyway, we, we just – literally started 
sending them to him uh, as he needed them. And we kind of built a relationship with him, went out to California, met a bunch of his colleagues, kind of started growing that. Um, and now today, uh, Red Bull's like one of our top five clients internationally. And you do a lot of B2B work yes. where you yep. are doing customized products yep. for big clients. Yep. What? How much of the business is that? Yeah, is so custom? that kind of transaction with Matt, you know, whatever that was five years ago or something, maybe more long, maybe longer ago was kind of the birth of one of our three channels that we have now, which is business to business. Mm -hmm. It's corporate gifting, making, uh, you know, notebooks, custom wood notebooks for U.S. Bank or custom wood um, business card holders for Cargill, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of or that is our main uh, kind of chunk of business. It's about 70% of our business. Wow. Um, and we have two other channels now, both of which are growing and will probably within the next year or two exceed that B2B portion. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the second one uh, is interiors. So about a year and a half ago, we launched an interiors company, which um, is doing interior dividing panels and things like that for corporate spaces. Separate company. Separate company. Yep. Still Woodchuck, Woodchuck Interiors. Um, and then our third piece, which is still part of uh, Woodchuck USA, um, is our retail channel. So we have relaunched retail this last December, and we're in about 700 retail stores now across the nation. And that'll ramp up to about 1,000 to 1,500 by the end of the year. Is that mostly specialty, it's big Mom box, and pop what? boutiques. Mom hmm. and pop boutiques. So, um, you know, through the past... Multiple, you got scared multiple by the target experience. Um, not as much that. More so, our, we've created product that's a great fit for smaller retailers. So, um, you know, Jeannie's Boutique that's on the East Coast or in in the Keys in Florida, she can put, you know, Jeannie's Boutique or Key West, Florida and really get specific because she knows what her customers want and we can make whatever Jeannie wants. So you can have customized products exactly. that she's selling to Exactly. So it's just consumers. a really good fit for these boutiques. So back up for a second. It yeah, yeah. seems like the Red Bull thing happened yep. really in the nick of time. Like oh, if yeah, that, yeah. If that opportunity hadn't come up after you had sold only seven units to Target, yeah. do you think we would be talking today? What would you have you done? Know, I, honestly, I I still think probably, maybe in a different capacity, but the, the thing and the reason why, you know, I say go listen to that podcast is because at that point, I mean, and there have been literally millions. I, I wish I could expound all of the the failures that we had. And I do a lot of that in the book. I, I really talk a lot about failure. And because um, like, you know, you mentioned when I when we got on uh, on the mic here, it's like, oh, like looks like all this amazing stuff has happened. It's like, oh, my God, I've had so many failures, like literally so many failures. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I expound upon that quite a bit in the book um, because I want people to understand that like there's so much failure involved with even one success. Um, but anyway, the, the difference to not quitting at that point, you know, being at that point of we got a bunch of our friends and family's money. Um, we literally don't have anything that we can sell or we didn't think we did. Uh, the difference was we truly were dedicated to figuring out how to connect people with nature and create jobs. It, it wasn't at that point about the phone cases. It wasn't about our family's money. It wasn't about what the hell are we going to do to like make the money back? It was literally about like, we are dedicated to this mission. And whether that means making wood phone cases or I don't know, uh, you know, cutting people's lawns and giving them the blast grades, you know, grass blades. I don't know. I'm just making mm -hmm. stuff up right mm -hmm. now, but no matter what it was like, Kevin and I were dedicated to like, Hey, we're dedicated to this mission. We got to figure out how to do this mission. So 
we're not going to like give up on the mission. We might give up on the product or the idea or that specific piece of the venture, which we have. You know, we no longer make wood phone skins. We make wood phone cases. Uh, mm. We make Mac skins, um, but we don't make wood phone skins anymore just because literally no one buys them mm-hmm. uh, and no one knows what they are well, but um so it, it had a moment it had a moment <laughs> it had two weeks yeah. um but uh you know so we were dedicated to that mission i really think that is what drove us through those really tough times and yeah. continued to drive us through all of the ups and downs in the journey kind of along the way when I met you, I mean, I think I met you like at Northern Grade, like at yeah, a pop-up yeah, yeah. event. You yep. were out there selling yep, the cases totally. yourself. Yeah. Did those did those events, which you guys used to do lots of, yeah. did did that help? Did, what did that do for the business? <laughs> I mean, literally, no. I think we never, ever— <laughs> Well, we met. Yeah, I mean, so no, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. From a revenue standpoint, I don't think we've ever been to a pop-up and made money. Interesting. Ever. And yet you're a brand that has been, I mean, local was an important part of your yeah. story and being out there and telling the story. Yeah. Did it help from that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. From like a direct revenue perspective, I literally don't think we ever had one that we, maybe one. Hmm. But anyway, no, I mean, it, but was, it was brand awareness. It was totally about brand awareness yeah. and about networking. I mean, clearly yeah. this, I mean, that was an incredible meet. Like, and there've been so many of those. And, and I really think it was just, yeah, but at that point about brand awareness and- so I went back and looked. The first time I wrote about you was in, um, and I don't think you had a beard then. You were like, oh, young, I was like young fresh-faced buck, guy. Didn't, didn't, I could, yeah. probably couldn't have grown a beard five oh, years ago, stop. seven years ago. So it was 2014 that the article ran okay. in Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine. Okay. Um, and I remember visiting you, and you were in Northeast, and you had yeah. a setup. I mean, yeah, you had yeah. people working with you, yep. and you yep. had a couple of yeah. machines. Like, yeah. how did you get the money to do that yeah. at that point? So we basically— just started cash flowing everything. Uh, we weren't taking at that point. Um, another brought on another person, John, um, who's now still business partners. Uh, bought out Kevin probably five years ago, four years ago. Um, when he wanted to go do something else in Boston, we're still like best friends. We're still like brothers, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredible. But yeah, no. So then um, it was basically John and I from that point on, and uh, we cash flowed everything. We didn't take salaries. We didn't take salaries literally until two years ago. Um, so, so what were you living on? I mean, like ramen noodles and green beans and like anything. Even when the company was appearing to be successful, you were still eating ramen noodles. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so how do you know when you are making enough that you can start taking a salary? How do you, how do you know when to hire? How do you know when to pay yourself? We, we honestly started taking salaries way later than we should have. Um, John and I thought that, hey, you know, like this is the right thing to do. Let's just keep putting all the money back into the company and, um, you know, just taking enough to basically buy ramen or pay your your $150 or $300 a month rent. Like find literally the cheapest you shithole you can live in. Yeah. Oh, my God. I lived in <laughs> South Minneapolis for the longest time in uh, a very int- – I've gotten a gun pulled on me three times uh, living there. We found some very interesting places. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, we so we thought it was the best thing to do. And we had a mentor, and I don't know which one it was at the time, that demanded that we start paying ourselves. Um, he said, you know, your worth value, you have to understand your value. I understand your, your dedication to the company and, and why you feel like you need to put it back in. But for a couple of reasons, um, you know, you have to start paying yourself one from a tax perspective, you need to under, like, you need to recognize that. And two, 
if you two can't make money at this business and it still work or be profitable, you have to change the model. Hmm. You have to switch the model because you can't work for free forever. Um, and if it can't afford to pay you, you got to figure out a different model or a different way to make things work. Um, now, so what was the Was there a, a, a turning point? Was there a moment when you were like, OK, we could actually live on this? I mean, it was him demanding that we pay ourselves. And we started out paying ourselves like, I don't know, $20,000 a year or something like, real, again, literally like, you know, very, mm-hmm. very bare bones. Um I, I still think it was good that we waited that long because, frankly, we didn't – we literally didn't have any money to pay ourselves prior mm-hmm. to. Um, but once we started paying ourselves and realizing, oh, like I need to be able to pay myself or like I have value and I need to make sure that value is compensated. If I die, someone's going to have to do this job and they're not going to do it for 20000 hmm. and they're not going to do it for $0. Um, they're going to do it for XYZ dollars and um, – so that was good that we started to think like that. We started to build a business like that. And we had to make more sales. And don't get me wrong. There have been many, many a times along the way where like we just don't take salary for a month or two because we need to pay our payroll. Mm-hmm. How um, many people work for Woodchuck now? So we have 47 now. Just okay. just under 50. Yeah. Uh, which is good from an HR perspective, keeping it under 50 for right now. Yeah. So any of is you that... HR gurus out there, <laughs> we have under 50. Is that a lot of pressure, though, on, on you? I mean, just thinking that, like, you're responsible for all those people and those salaries. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I feel any more pressure than I do – than I did a long time ago, but my tolerance has gotten much different. How so? so? Um, my tolerance for risk has gotten a lot I, I've understood a completely different like I in the book I call it mental graduation. You know, you start at this thing where you think um, you know a $2,000 bill is like a lot of money and uh, a big deal or a $2,000 discrepancy or someone you know stealing $500 from you you feel like that's the hugest big sure. deal in the world when you have nothing yeah when, when that's you have a lot. nothing but then as you as you grow and you go through these different phases and as you personally and and as you personally develop um, and kind of business-wise develop, you like learn how to handle those things differently, which allows for a different amount of risk, allows for a different amount of tolerance. So I would, I mean, not in a million years, you know, if right in the beginning, if you would have said, oh, you got 48 employees, does that does that stress you out? I'd be like, oh my God, yeah, super mm-hmm. stress. That's mm-hmm. super stressful. What do I do with all these salaries? Oh my God, what's happening here? What's happening? You know, I, I would have gone crazy. But over time, as you kind of like grow into it, you just – you have a different level of like tolerance. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a minute about buy one, plant one. Yeah. At, at what, when was it at what point that you added that element yeah. to the business? I'd have to look was, exactly at the date, but it was like three years ago or something, three, maybe So three you were already successful. You were already in a lot of stores. Why, why did you do that? Why did you decide to – yeah, I commit think, in I that mean, large of a way. Our our focus is really, and it's continued. It's it's um, our continued focus is literally how do we connect people with nature, mm-hmm. and, and how do we build jobs, and um, no matter what we're ever doing, even if it's the best in the world, we'll ever be good enough, um, in my opinion, and that's kind of what allows me to keep pushing us as a team and us as a company and us as a mission is no matter what we're doing, it it won't be good enough. There will always be something 
better to do. I think there, there's a quote like, um, there will always be a higher mountain, said the man standing on top of the mountain. You know, no matter, and I'm definitely not insinuating that we're like standing on top of a mountain by any means. We have so much further to go to like accomplish and help save our planet. Um, but I think that the ability to continue pushing, I mean, that's definitely not something that all companies instill, but our continued focus on that led us to buy one, plant one. It leads us to how do we make that program better now? It leads us to evaluating different partners now. It leads us to um, how do we make that program better, but how do we start a nature center that actually involves kids with nature? How do we you know, write a book that actually helps other entrepreneurs start their own things that can save the planet? It's like this continued focus on this mission, mm-hmm. really. And, and um, so when when you did that, I mean, it made so much sense. I, yeah, mean, given, yeah. I mean, you were using a lot of reclaimed totally. wood, yep. right? You were yep. trying to source locally. And, and I mean, the wood and, and the trees, I mean, it all had meaning and yeah. was so directly tied to the product that it made perfect sense to add that mission. Totally. It's also become a, a popular thing to do. Yeah. You know, Warby Parker and Tom's yep. and all yep. of these other brands. Yeah. Did it give the brand a boost, number yeah. one. And yep. number two, it's kind of complicated to execute. I mean, I remember yeah. talking to you earlier just about like keeping track of the trees yeah, yeah. and planting and like yeah. the logistics. It's almost like running another business. Yeah. Oh, totally. hundred um, percent. Yeah. So it came up actually, and I just told the story earlier today to a guy that was in, um, it came up uh, I was running through a forest in San Francisco, and um, at the time we didn't have buy one plant one. But I was just trying to think, like, what else can we do? You know, we're making wood products, and that kind of natural sense of product helps connect people to nature. But what else can we do? What else can we do? And I got back up to the top of the hill, and it was a big like redwood forest, and um, I saw this sign that said, "A hundred years ago, these trees weren't here." Basically, and it, it was a long, a lot longer, more eloquent description than that but Mm -hmm. it was basically hey 100 years ago these trees that you just ran through this incredible experience wasn't here Hmm. and i was like okay we just we need to plant a tree for every product and i know the one for in in my mind i was like i don't really want to do the one for one thing because like everyone's doing that like it's kind of cliche like tom's where we parker etc but the, the at the end of the day you know a lot of companies are doing that because it works and i think the thing that i've really learned about marketing since we've started that program is it has to be so simple, simple enough that a fifth grader can understand it and remember the next day. Or what I like to say is simple enough that your drunk buddy at the bar can remember the next day when he's hung over. Like, mm-hmm. hey, do you remember what I do? Oh, yeah, you plant trees or you plant trees with products or something. You know, like it's got to be that simple. Anything more complex, it just gets lost. You know, you could have this incredible, incredible world-changing marketing plan that's going to do all these things. But if you can't communicate it really simply, um, it, it's kind of, I don't want to say pointless, but, mm-hmm. you know, like you got to be able to market the idea. And that's what that was. It was a really easy marketable idea that when we were selling to companies, when we we're selling to the U.S. banks, when we we're selling to the Cargills, and we can say, hey, Cargill, uh, along with buying this awesome product that we're making here in Minnesota, you're going to be planting trees, now, or, or you're going to be planting 10,000 trees with your order. And they can then market that. They can say, hey, we planted 10,000 10, trees in uh, Madagascar last month with our products. What are you doing? Or, hey, company, this is how we're yeah. making a difference. Sure. And that was able to kind of catch on. It's a really simple message, and we were able to really grow from there. I truly believe that that was one of kind of our tipping points um, is when we adopted the buy one, plant one. How do you decide where you plant trees? 
So that is a whole, that is a, it's a, it's developed into actually a very organized um, and very uh, mathematical way. Uh, when we first started uh, the program, it was, let's just plant the trees ourselves, you know, <laughs> uh, because like, how hard can it be to plant like a thousand trees? And we we're like, oh, well, we're making, I don't know, 20,000 units a year or something. Like, let's just go plant 20,000 trees by ourselves. Sure. And then you can eat some ramen and totally. drink some beer. Yeah, yeah. totally. And like, it'd <laughs> be super easy, right? All let's just day. go plant these yeah. trees. So our first planting thing as a team, uh, it was in Minnesota here. It was actually at my, at my cousin's, like, basically, it's like a, a it's like a kind of boutique farm. Um, and we were planting them in this area that needed trees. And we, pl- we were going to plant a 1,000 trees. We had 15 employees. And uh, we are like, we're going to go out and plant for the day. So we started at 8 a.m. And it took us until, like, 7 or 8 p.m. with 15 people to plant a 1,000 trees. That's a lot and, of trees. And we're like, this is going to take way <laughs> Way longer than we planned. Like, we are not going to be able to plant this many trees. Um, So, like, we need to be able to find partners. We need to be able to work with the Forest Service. We need to be able to work with um, parks, et cetera, and realize we got to come up with a program that's global, that's scalable, et cetera. And so that became, like, that has since then been, like, my kind of primary focus, my baby, my thing um, that I focus on there now Uh and it turned into, you know, what it is today. We planted millions of trees on um, six different continents. We tried to plant on Antarctica too. Uh, <laughs> we weren't successful. Um, but as we as we like to say, we have an impact on all seven mm-hmm. continents. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it turned into this program. And a lot of the early on plantings that we did, they weren't successful. And uh, so? The, so they weren't f- successful for a couple different reasons. And we kind of like learned through this process, um, either we'd go plant with a big group of people uh, and then the villagers would literally just cut them down. Um, oh. Or we'd go in and plant and five miles away, the government is clearing, you know, in, in – uh, in, um, South America and five miles away, the government's clear cutting like hundreds of hectare uh, of like virgin forest next to it. And uh, so there's like all these nuances when we were first starting up the program. And we've developed now a list of I think it's like 45 um, different kind of questions and bullet points in a three pillar system. So each planting site that we review or that is an option has to have all three pillars in the system. The first one is local community. So the local community has to be involved in the planting. It can't just be like, you know, uh, a bunch of people from U.S. Bank flying over to Africa. We're going to plant the shit down of trees mm-hmm. and then we're out of here. <laughs> uh, the local community has to be involved because the local community has to take ownership over it and feel like they're a part of the planting and and really not feel like they're a part, like be the planters and become, become the planters, learn what planting means, how that changes their environment, how that changes the ecosystem. So that's the first pillar. Local community has to be involved. Second pillar is local or national government has to be involved. So like the example that I was just talking about where we were planting a couple miles away, government comes in, chops down all the trees. That's not super sustainable not and not, no. not good. Um, so we have to have either relationships or an understanding that there's not going to be clear-cut action with uh, government. And then the final thing um, is there's got to be funding. Uh, there's got to be funding to start up. However, it shouldn't require ongoing funding. So um, – you know, and this is like a way bigger topic, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that after a certain amount of time, the community should be, you know, entrepreneurial enough or uh, 
figure out different ways of generating revenue rather than just taking donations because that's not sustainable either. Because what we found is, hey, cool, big company likes to come in and, and plant a bunch of trees. Well, what happens three years from now uh, when they decide, hey, we're going to move in a different direction. We're concerned about water. Well, now the now the village just lost its funding. And what's it going to do? It's going to go back to cutting down the trees to turn them into revenue. So if the community isn't learning how to fish, isn't learning how to farm, isn't learning how to generate revenue outside of just reforestation, mm-hmm. it's not a sustainable and ongoing planting program. So anyway, it's kind of those three pillars now that we vet out. And I'm sure, you know, hey, look, in the future, there's probably still going to be sites that fail and we're going to learn new things and we're probably going to add another pillar. But that's really given us, you know, a, a 95% uh, success rate really with a lot of these things. It seems like whatever the task at hand is, you just sort of, it's, you know, trial and error and you learn along totally. the way. Has there been any point in this journey of building Woodchuck um, that you've said, gosh, I really need some other expertise. I need to take a class. I need to bring someone in. Or have you really just sort of organically figured it out? No, no. A hundred percent expertise, a hundred percent on bringing people in. Um, And also understanding that I personally need to continue to grow at an accelerated rate in order to keep up with the company, in order to keep up with where we're going and where we're headed in the vision and things. Um, People is huge. And I think the last time we talked, we were at brick and mortar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I was I was in a weird place there because I was trying to learn like, oh, wait, I can't do everything myself anymore. Um, and I need to re- have really smart people on the team. And um, I need to be able to bring these people in. And I need to learn how to coach people, even though I, I like doing this stuff and not necessarily like right. coaching people up. And that wasn't my expertise. But I think when we talked then, that was after you had sort of taken a, a step back. Didn't you have yeah. a moment yep. where you... You yeah. sort of took a little time away. Yep. Yeah. Was it just overwhelming or, or what what had happened that precipitated that? I think I had to understand subconsciously and consciously that the company could survive if I wasn't physically doing the things. If I wasn't physically in it making the things, if I wasn't physically in it helping correct things, I think I needed to understand. And we've, you know, had some falters around that time or whatever, um, but I just needed to have that a little baseline sense of comfort that this thing isn't going to light up in flames and, and burn down if mm-hmm. I'm not here for a couple of weeks. Because going full throttle for whatever it was, five years probably at that time or something, um, it's it's draining. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a shit ton of energy, like right, I do, right? Um, so I kind of that that time away was really great. Uh, How was, much time? I think it was like four or five months. Okay, and I was still like, you and were know, you really checked out for a couple months? I was when I was in Antarctica. I was there for like two months. Uh, so I was like really out. Two months in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was like out, out. Um, but uh, no texting. Yeah, no, no Wi Fi. No, no, it's just me and my journal, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually a really great time. But um, the that f- like period off really helped me reconnect. Uh, you know, that's one of the chapters in here disconnect to reconnect. It helped me reconnect to like my why and my personal passion, which I came back and I started writing the book uh, after that trip. Um, and also helped me refocus on why I started the company and that I was going to have to learn and adapt and change and grow to kind of be at that next level in order to help this thing grow to the next level. So it, it confirmed for you, though, that you want to be in the business. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 
but it's different today. I mean, what first of all, what is your day to day role? And mm-hmm. and I mean, obviously, you're not you can't just act like a founder, renegade entrepreneur anymore. I mean, yeah. you're leading a, a team. Yeah. There are responsibilities. Yep. Are you as good at that as you are at creating something? Yeah. I mean, no, I think definitely not. But I'm, I'm learning, you know, every step of the way. Um, I enjoy the creative startup phase. That's what I just absolutely get super jacked about every time someone comes up to me with a business idea. I want to like get in and like help them and mm-hmm. like, hey, let's, let's talk this, let's talk this. And and that's what I really love and enjoy. But at the same time, what I love and enjoy is this mission and um, learning how to coach people, learning how to bring the best people on the team, learning how to not physically do something and help coach someone through it and help help them fail and then learn their own lessons and not get super pissed off is Mm -hmm. something that I'm working on daily now because I know that the company needs that in order for it to get to the next level. What is the next level? World domination, (laughs) world reforestation. (laughs) Woodchuck the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, our, our big hairy audacious goal is to be the world's largest wood products manufacturer that's sustainably focused um, to reforest the planet and uh, to help other people now help other people also uh, engage their ideas to change the world. How um, talk a little bit about this nature center that you're building because that's yeah. kind of a part of the mission. I know it's yeah. I, I, I know yeah. it's been delayed. Yeah. So here's another but... failure story for everyone who thinks that there's no failures. Um, yeah. So uh, this was about two years ago. Realized that we also really need to get people technically connected. You know, we're planting trees, and that's great. You can see your code. It's a great experience now. You can go and type in the code uh, that you get with your product online. It'll show you where the tree is, who planted it, um, what's the temperature like there, and kind of engage you in that site, whether right. it's so Madagascar I have a, I have or Europe. A wood journal from yep. Woodchuck, and yep. I can know that because of this wood journal, a tree was planted somewhere in the world. Yep, yep. And um, so that was a piece of kind of the connection. But uh, also realize that, hey, we physically need to be able to connect people to the plants and the actual planting of it. Get your hands on dirt. And um, decided let's do something close to the cities within two hours that uh, – we're going to be able to bring our customers to, let's say they fly in for a conference. We're going to be able to drive up there in an hour and a half or two hours and go physically plant trees with them. Someone that's out in nature, kind of surrounded by some lakes or something, but feels nature-y. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we kind of came up with this uh, nature retreat idea. Okay, well, cool. Like, let's just do it. You know, I'm always like, let's just do it. Let's just go like mm-hmm. 100% full throttle. Let's figure it out along the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we did. Bought a couple hundred acres of land and uh, said, you know, we're going to build a greenhouse up there. We're going to have a nature retreat and that's what we're going to do. And that's still absolutely the plan. But um, a couple wrenches got thrown in the the plan. Turns out it's a lot harder to start a nature center uh, than, than I thought, like most things. Um, but uh, so we're currently renovating uh, a little cabin that's on it. So First and foremost, we have a place to stay and and shower uh, when we're there working on it. And you're literally working on the land. Yeah, yeah, yep, okay. yep. Uh, and uh, we built the greenhouse. The greenhouse is ready to go, but it has zero plants in it right now. So uh, it's taken a lot longer. We wanted to have it running to be able to do field trips up to it and take part planting partners out. That's probably not going to happen until next year now. Um, but yeah, a lot two two. 
a year and a half longer than expected, uh, two years longer than expected. But that's the other thing we're working on. Do things like that. I mean, I'm wondering, like, do do you have mentors who are like Ben? Just stay focused on the business. Oh, totally. Start, I mean, totally. Yeah. But this you is don't me listen. focused. No, no. This is me focused. Okay. Uh, if if I didn't have great mentors, I would have probably tried to start 15 things already, mm-hmm. and uh, and none of them would have been successful. So thank God, you know. Luckily, I have some incredible people, incredible mentors uh, in my life, and I'm very, very blessed and very fortunate to have them. Um, and they keep me throttled enough and focused enough on the things that I am doing and really connecting with myself and understanding why I'm doing these things and making sure that also at the same time, hey, I'm personally happy on top of, you know, employing a bunch of people to make them happy and make them the best version of themselves that they can and make sure that they're accomplishing what they've wanted to accomplish in life, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned real estate at the beginning. Besides the Nature Center, you, when you moved to your current woodchuck facility in yep. northeast Minneapolis, you yep. bought the building. Yeah. And you have now become, I mean, that that building, what's the name of the building? Northco. Northco is yep. like a hub for other startups. Yeah. Why take that on? Uh, so at the same time, so it's kind of one of these things that being an entrepreneur just once you once you like taste entrepreneurship in my in in my opinion um which is another reason why I wrote this book to help people taste entre- entrepreneurship um even if they do it in a small capacity is once you taste it you kind of have this different perspective of challenges and challenges don't become this like negative thing and and I think once you um taste entrepreneurship you start thinking as opposed to thinking negatively thinking how many other people are experiencing this problem and can I solve this problem? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were, yeah, renting at the space that you interviewed us at down the street. And it was the two landlords that now I'm business partners with on all this real estate. And um, we could not get a space for the life of us. We couldn't get that space that we were in. We, we uh, couldn't get any other spaces because we didn't have two years of financials to show a bank and we definitely didn't have any years of profitable financials. And banks like to see if you're going to rent or leasing, you know, uh, uh, real estate likes to see if you're going to rent, you got to have two years of financials. You're going to have to pay three to six months of a deposit down on the space. So let's say you got a space that's $2,000 a month. You're going to have to pay six months down. That's twelve grand. I mean, we didn't have twelve grand. Mm-hmm. We, we, we almost didn't have $2,000. Um, but we needed a space. We needed a physical space. So all of these kind of challenges through looking at spaces started coming up and realized, man, there's a lot of really good companies that in a year or two are going to be incredibly profitable, that are going to be incredible companies that will help change the world, that will do all these incredible things, but they can't get a freaking space to rent. Mm -hmm. There's so many other companies like us. We aren't the only one. And rather than being like, oh, shucks, we couldn't get a space. Let's close up the doors, you know, or whatever. We're like, how could we structure something that allowed other companies to get a space. So approached, um, we originally had a different deal actually with a, a different large manufacturing company in Minnesota. That deal, after a couple months of going through, ended up falling through because the the founder who loved the idea, he's an older guy, 85 years old, um, he passed away. And his family kind of didn't want to take on the risk or take on anything else. And um, the two owners of the place that we rented at knew that and uh, so kind of pitched them on this idea. Hey, what if we, what if this building down the street, you know, we kind of do this thing with, I'll bring in the renters, I'll help with the architecture. Um, and they said, yeah, let's do it. So we were able to create this space. North and they Go. brought the money to yep, the table. They brought the money to needed? the table. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause we definitely didn't have the money. We had yeah. no money. We didn't, we barely had enough money to rent. Mm-hmm. They said, Hey, we'll make you a partner. 
if you bring in all the tenants and you help us with the architecture work on this. And I, and I knew just within my network that I could bring in the tenants. Um, just How many are in that building? 22 now? people now, tw- okay. or 22 companies. And you have to be a startup to-, to You don't be- have to be. You don't have to be. Most of them are mid-stage now because most of them are started up actually are still there. Um, you know, companies like the Socialites, Great Lakes, um, there's digital agencies there, there's marketing agencies, modeling companies, et cetera. Um, but there were companies that probably couldn't have, potentially probably couldn't have gotten space other in other places because they needed these financials to prove or they needed the down payment. But that we were able to look at myself, uh, Andy and George are the um, other owners' names. We were able to look at the business plans and say, hey, is this something that we think is going to make it? Is this something that, you know, has the has the general, you know, is it generally going in the right direction? Um, let's bring them in, if so. And uh, we just kind of developed it from there. The building was full six months after starting it. Um, and we've since then purchased uh, now the rest of the block, except for two apartment buildings. So there's about a half million square feet total uh, that we're continuing to develop into more space like this. Hmm. Yeah. See, and how much time does that take? Uh in the beginning, it took a ton of time. Yeah. So like the first year or two of that, I mean, there was, I, I definitely didn't sleep that much because we were doing plans and we were getting tenants and et cetera. Now, once it's set up, um, it's, it doesn't take that much time. I mean, a day, a week or something. I have an incredible assistant um, that is very good at technical details, you know, making sure the leases are signed, making sure the, that the payments are in, making sure that people are paying on time. Um, you know, all of these technical details, he's incredible at that. Um, so that's allowed for me to, you know, maybe spend a day or so on it mm-hmm. a week. So you found the time to write a book, yeah. The World Needs Your Effing Ideas. Yeah. And um, was this because you were tired of having coffee with people who wanted to start something? Something and wanted to get yeah. your advice, wanted yeah. to pick your brain. Yeah, I, I mean it. It real. I mean it's a it's a great story. It sounds like you. It has a lot of really fun anecdotes in it. But I mean, really, you're you're giving people the the courage to to see through an idea. It's not just the idea. It's acting on the idea. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. So if there is a, a takeaway, I mean, obviously everybody should read the book. Yeah. Um, what do you hope readers come away with from this, from reading this book? Yeah. Um, so I, I try to keep it super basic and super principle focused, and just super clear messages. And I outline all of them. I do the spark notes version at the end of like the 14 things that I learned kind of in the principles. Um, you know, I talk about conscious circle and your ability to surround yourself with people and actively selecting the people you're surrounding yourself with, which is like not a new concept, but people think like, Oh, like this is, this is my circle. This is who I hang out with. This is what I am. No, you can consciously select that. So I I go through these principles. There's one thing that I had to say to, to take from it. Um, it's, what is your one thing? And and what do I mean by that is what is your one thing that you're going to do today, tonight, after right after listening to this podcast? So people who are listening to this podcast, I'm, I'll ask you this question. What is your one thing that you are going to do within the next five hours of listening to this podcast that gets you closer to your goal or gets you closer to your why? Hmm. What's one thing? And, and, that's something that so few people, you know, you hear it, you're, you you got to take action, you hear all this stuff, but what is your one thing that you're going to do and that you're going to do each day to get you closer to your why, to get you closer to your goal of maybe, maybe it's starting a company, maybe it's starting a nonprofit, maybe it's getting a group of people together to go clean up trash on Saturdays. 
what's the one step you're going to take? You don't have to take these huge leaps. You don't have to start a LLC tomorrow, although that would be a great way to start. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to, um, you know, start a world-changing business tomorrow. But what's the one thing you're going to do? Who are you going to talk to tomorrow or tonight? What's the one email you're going to send tonight that, you know, to a mentor, to ask them to be your mentor, to help you on this next journey? What's the uh, one text that you're going to send to hang out with someone more uh, that would be a great influence on your life to help you get to that next stage of entrepreneurship? What is that one thing you're going to do? And if you have one thing every single day, you'll, you're going to be in incredible places a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, seven years from now. Mm-hmm. If you can do one thing each, each day, even if those things are taking you backwards. A lot of people think that, oh, I don't know if that's the right step. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that was the wrong step because what that wrong step did was it just confirmed what the right way is. That's all it did. Mm -hmm. When we went into Target stores, that was not the right step. That was a wrong step. But that step, understanding what that step was into big box retail, we understood that big box retail was not for us. That wasn't something that was meant for us, wasn't meant for our product, wasn't meant for our mission. So we did confirm that corporate gifting was right for us and that boutique retail was right for us. And those things were right. I mean, we've stepped a million different ways and stepped in a lot of wrong directions, but all those wrong directions did was get us closer to what the right thing was. Sure. So, well, you've already done an amazing thing today by coming on by all means. But what what do the next five hours hold for you? What what else are you going to do today? Yeah, I'm working on actually a new deal uh, right now that I'm really excited about. Um, and I don't want everyone to like take my ideas here. But actually, you know what? If they do take these ideas, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love for more people to take these ideas. So there's um, something called an opportunity zone that came out about a year and a half ago yep. on the tax bill. Are you familiar with it? Yes. Um, so. There's actually quite a few areas in Minneapolis that are designated opportunity zones. In real simplistic ways, it's you get better uh, tax breaks, basically, for developing in areas that are a little more uh, disadvantaged. Need development. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as Woodchuck grows and as other companies grow, we're going to need more real estate um, and we're going to need more spaces to kind of help build the companies like Woodchuck that can help change the world. And um, we're looking at a couple different areas right now uh, to develop, and uh, it's going to take a lot of work. There's a lot of technical details that are still kind of unknown in the zone because it's relatively new. The deals are relatively um, new, and uh, there's a lot of details that got to get figured out still. But we got a couple really incredible uh, zones that we're looking at and working on to, you know, allow more companies to grow. And um, that's what I'm going to be doing the next five hours. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, what do your parents think of uh, what you've done at this point? I mean, they love coming and seeing the stuff being made. Uh, you know, I think it's it's usually hard, to, and I'm sure all entrepreneurs can um, uh, uh, lament with this, but it's it's really hard to explain what you do to your parents because, you know, like they see you as like, oh, the little kid, you know, mm-hmm. or the guy that went to architecture school. It's like hard to explain. Oh, yeah, I'm working Could on these. Could have been like, an architect yeah, then. Yeah. I'm like <laughs> working on these multi-million dollar deals with like, you know, all this, all these crazy people from all over the world, uh, you know, and, and just, uh, I don't know. I, I love my parents and uh, they've been so supportive through the whole thing. It's been awesome to to bring them along on the journey as well. So And most importantly, are you living in a safer neighborhood? Now? I am absolutely living in a safer okay. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. So. You feel you feel okay yeah. with having a yep. being able to pay rent. Yeah, and I can I can pay rent most days. Uh-huh. Uh, I can I can uh, do you, do you not get it? guns 
pointed at me most days. Well, that is that is a very uh, good thing. Can, do are you at a point where you can just where you can feel relaxed about taking your salary? Um, does that ever happen? I, honestly, no. I, I don't. For me personally, and this is something I kind of learned through my you know six month hiatus or five month hiatus. I actually don't like feeling relaxed, and in, in or, or the relaxed in the traditional sense for me gets me really anxious. It gets me like super anxiety ridden when I'm not doing something because I I know that my potential um, could be helping change the world or doing different things, and so for me, relaxed is like not relaxed. It's like working on stuff, helping people, doing this, doing that. And that that for me brings a lot of peace hmm. to me, if that, if that makes sense. It does to some yeah. people, you know, I guess that's, everybody's that's different, how you know. As my dad says, exactly. everybody's different. Everybody's different. The book is called The World Needs Your Effing Ideas. The company is Woodchuck. Ben Vanden Weimelenberg, thank you for sharing your thank story you. today. Thank Great you so to much. Have you. Stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. That's next. So what happens when you get the call from Target or another big company? What does it mean to consign? And what should you as a startup founder consider before you sign on the dotted line? Let's go back to the classroom with Mike Porter, faculty director of two healthcare programs for Opus College of Business. He's taught entrepreneurship and marketing. He's worked for decades with early stage businesses. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, But let's start with the idea that that call from a Target or a Walmart is probably not just going to come out of the blue. Unless you have some very spectacular product that you've probably gotten a lot of traction in some other way online, maybe through viral media, who knows. Mm -hmm. Um, But in all likelihood, in Ben's case, for instance... Um, he didn't just he didn't just get that call. He he had some things that he didn't talk to you about that made connections for him somehow to get to the right person, and that's a difficult dance. There was some networking that went absolutely on. Yeah. some networking, and in all, it, and oftentimes it's you know knowing somebody who has been selling into those organizations. I mean, mm. if you're an entrepreneur and you want to do that and you have logical reasons for doing that, it's finding somebody who sells into that space, who's sold into Target and Walmart and Best Buy that can help carry you to that place. Um, sometimes it's a network connection. Sometimes you're literally hiring them to help you make that happen. Mm, okay? Good point. Um, so you get that face-to-face and then you take the dance to the point where you're actually, they're saying, okay, so we'll let you put this in our stores. But remember that consigning your product to them is relatively low risk for a Target or a Best Buy or a Walmart, right? Because you're paying for all the packaging, you're paying for all the product, you're paying for all of everything and whatever point of purchase you're putting in, if they let you put any in, you and may that's... only be getting two or three SKUs, right? You might We're going to hang our product in next to all of the other products. And there's no one at Target or Walmart that's necessarily your champion mm. that is going to help say, hey, we're going to put that in a prominent place or we're going to make sure that we're having our associates know more about your product. All of those other kinds of things, those are on you and you may or may not get them. You're so not necessarily in, going to the end cap on day well, one. Def- <laughs> and if you're you know, anytime you're going to an end cap, you're going to pay something. There's some exchange of capital. And that exchange of capital could be, oh, somebody here really loves this product. We think we can sell a lot of it, so we're going to put it in a prominent place or we're going to help it out. That's the exception. 
So you're, so let's say you're a a brand new business or you're very early stage. You're so excited just to get that call. It's validating the fact that your product is, is legit. What questions should you ask? Well, I think some of those questions have to do, they're internal questions. So what is it we expect to get out of this? What is the return on this investment? And the other thing that, that is part of that investment, you've paid for all of that. And if you don't sell it, if it doesn't sell while it's sitting on target shelves, you get it back. Mm-hmm. Then you got to sell it someplace else, right? So for an early stage company that doesn't have a lot of money in the bank, that means you either need to go out and find more money or whatever to get it on the shelf. And you need to say, well, can we afford that? What do we have to give up in order to do that? Do we have to give up equity? Do we have to get bring in these other investors? What are those factors? If this product is definitely hardcore, we know we've done our research and this is the way we have to go to market, then maybe it is an investment that's worth that time. But you need to figure out how it's going to play once it gets in the store. Right, right. Good points. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about is the idea of having friends and family invest. Very common, especially Very common. with small startups. Yeah. Yes. What should you, I know that kind of raised a, a little bit of a red flag for you when well, you heard I'm, Ben talk about that. I'm not sure that. that red flag is the right um, word. Other than what Ben didn't talk about was, well, what kind of terms do you have with friends and family? You know, it, it could be a gift, right? It's my mom. My mom's going to give me 10 grand because my mom can afford 10 grand. Okay, that's great. Mm-hmm. Mom wants to see you succeed. That's her payback. Not all friends and family are quite that generous. Right. We right? only have one mom. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a really nice uncle somewhere. But, you know, when we're starting to talk about thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that are coming from a friends and family investment, it's an investment. And sometimes that can be like loan terms. So I'm going to pay back the $10,000, I'll get you twelve five in six months or a year or whatever that is. But you need to delineate that. It's I've seen entrepreneurs say, oh, well, I got friends and family money. Well, well, but how are they going to get paid back? Well, you don't want to cause tension with those people four years from now when they think they own 10% of the business or they think they own some part of the business and mm-hmm. you've done, um, you know, had a merger or acquisition. Well, what are they getting? You know, you need to s- d- delineate what those things are. Right. Because you still have to have Thanksgiving dinner with exactly, these people. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, and then, you know, part of that friends and family can be that I think that people forget is there's a element of networking that you can um, factor into friends and family, right? So my uncle George, he's he's going to put in ten grand, and you know what? His neighbor, well, he was talking to him about that, and and his neighbor's willing to put some money into. Okay, well that's that's money that isn't necessarily friends and family, but it's part of that network, and it can it fits into the same into the same bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to the degree that you're doing that with very specific terms, you know, here's what you're going to get for payback. Selling that off as equity, that's complicated because if you do need to go to the next layer and, and look at angel investing, for instance, and say, you know what, we in order for us to go into Target, we're going to have to come up with 100 grand in order to come up with enough product to have a real impact. Well, mm-hmm. then you have to give up some part of your business to the angel investor um, to get that 100 grand. Right. And that's I, – I love Ben's story because he built on revenue. The businesses that I've been involved in, we've really been trying to build on revenue. So you're using your own funds that you're generating to do all those kinds of things and you don't have to give up equity. Um, That's not always possible. If you were a medical device company, you're not going to ever be able to do that. You know, that's just – Sure. You need the cash. Yeah, sometimes. 
Yeah. Great advice and great to get that realistic perspective sure. and keep that in mind when you're trying to build that fairy tale story. Thank you, Professor, for being here. Thank you to the Opus College of Business at the University of St. Thomas. And thank you for listening to By All Means. If you liked what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts and please rate us and give us a review. You can subscribe to listen to more episodes and you can also find out more about the show at tcbmag.com slash by all means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.